and welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast on current events, faith, and peacemaking from a Mennonite perspective. I am Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Absent is my co-host, Melissa Flora Bixler, this week. Uh, that scheduling is uh, can be pretty complicated, so uh, we're going to miss Melissa, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation today um, with a guest. And when Hannah and I were, were putting together Peace Lab in the, way back in 2016, you know, we just had a bunch of names off the top of our head that we said, oh, we, we should talk to all these different people. And our guest today, Lisa Sherp, was one of them. And we said, whatever she wants to talk about, you know, we think it would be a good conversation. And so we started reaching out to Lisa, I guess, in March to, to get this scheduled. And, and here we are today. Lisa, thanks for joining us on Peace Lab. It's great to be here. And thanks so much for your work. Well, I think a lot of our listeners uh, know you. You're Mennonite famous, uh, you know, for uh, probably for teaching at EMU for a lot of our folks. But outside of that, you lead a rich and full life. How else do you like to introduce yourself? Uh, what, what should our listeners know about, about you? Well, right now my affiliations are in Washington, D.C. with the Alliance for Peacebuilding, which is a network of all the U.S.-based peacebuilding groups. And then I also work part-time for the Tokyo-based TODA Peace Institute, in which I do research and writing on social media, social movements, um, violent extremism, and many other topics related to peace. And so prolific work in the academic world, and you've written a lot of books. I, I know your, your little book of strategic peacemaking, that's, that's one that I keep pretty close by. So, so what we want to do with the conversation today, maybe is start out with a document that Lisa's got, and I think it's on your blog at this point, uh, The Ethics of Peacebuilding. Yes. And, and I'm assuming these are lessons that, that you've accrued over the years you know, in academics and, and in the field, uh, just principles and directions that guide you whenever you engage in, in any peacebuilding activity. I'm wondering right. if you could give our audience a sense of how that list came to be and maybe just a bird's eye view of, of what's on there. Yeah, on my blog at the WordPress site, Lisa Shirk, uh, you can look up and see there's sort of 10 principles really of the field of peacebuilding. These are not original to me in any way but things I have learned from older peace builders and from peace builders in Afghanistan, Iraq, all over the world that I've met and um, I've learned a great deal from. So these 10 principles, I start out with uh, what I call the two-handed approach to peace building. So I think a lot of people think peace building is about being neutral. It absolutely is not neutral. We're very partial to values, to human rights, to freedoms, to empowerment, to speaking out against injustice. And I think through all of my work, I'm not neutral. I am very partial to the values of peace building. But a two-handed approach says, as I am having one hand up, pushing against injustice, naming things that need to be named as unhelpful, unjust, I also have another hand out in front of me to greet the other person who might be my enemy or my adversary, somebody that I disagree with. I have that hand out acknowledging their humanity and saying, I might disagree with you, but I am not going to be disrespectful to you. I am going to listen to you and I'm going to learn from you. And in that engagement, I know I will also change. And what I have found over and over again from talking with the U.S. military to talking with Israelis that I disagreed with or offenders who've been accused of sexual abuse, I talk to all kinds of people that I disagree with. It's, it's one of the core principles that I have is that I sit down and I have conversations with people that I feel strongly that I have something different from their perspective. 
I learned something. I learned more about how they came to that position, what they care about. And sometimes it helps me refine or make better arguments myself. So it, it can help in advocacy, but it also helps me keep the humanity of the person in front of me, that I don't use demonizing language, that I recognize and respect them, and that I'm not trying to humiliate anyone, but I'm really seeking understanding and the light of God within that other person. When you say that, I, I can't see how anyone dedicated to peacemaking could disagree with it. But then, of course, like when you take this into you know sort of real world and emotions start to get involved, it, like it's a lot harder, I guess, maybe to probably hard to stick to that. And then it's hard for folks in this situation maybe to appreciate the positives of, of that approach. So when you really start to think about, okay, I, I'm not going to demonize someone. If that's a person who's, who's oppressing or, or, or doing wrong to you or someone you love, suddenly that's a lot harder to do. Yeah, how have people responded, I guess, to this two-handed approach and, and some of the specific issues you've worked with? I get a lot of criticism for it, um, and especially from Mennonites, actually. So when I started working with the U.S. military and teaching peace building and trying to find alternatives that are nonviolent to how to respond to groups like ISIS or the Taliban, Mennonites were vicious, I would say, in saying no Mennonites have ever done this before and, and you can't reach out a hand and try to understand and talk to the military. When I was working on the issue of sexual abuse, I was doing that also with offenders. I was reaching out, I was talking, I was encouraging them to come forward and be accountable. And some of the other advocates on sexual abuse thought I was crazy that why would you talk to them and sort of not understanding some of the approach that I use. And certainly now this week on Israel and Palestine, this is the issue I've been working on for the last few years with MCUSA, but I've been an activist for Palestinian rights for 30 years. I've spoken out on CNN, on Fox News, denouncing Israeli aggression for a long time. In my research, this policy of occupation and siege, what I have come to realize from talking to many, many activists, Palestinians, Israelis, and many others, is that there is a block into building a broader movement where Jews and Palestinians are working together on ending occupation. There are many thousands of Jewish peace groups that are working to end occupation. Most of those feel very sensitive about the anti-Semitism in a lot of the Palestinian advocacy. And they want very much to work hand in hand with Palestinians, but many Palestinians want to have nothing to do with Jews or Israelis. So they're, in order to build a strategic nonviolent movement, I think we need to deal with both anti-Semitism, which is a block to building the nonviolent strategic coalition that we need in order to build a movement that can be effective in ending occupation. As long as pro-Palestinian supporters are demonizing and grouping all Jews and Israelis together and really not understanding what anti-Semitism even is. Very few Christians have taken any training at all. After 10 days solid of anti-Semitism training, I realize I only know the surface. I am more sensitized, but I still am at the beginning of understanding this. 
But now that my awareness has been raised somewhat, I see anti-Semitism all over Mennonite advocacy, and I wish we could have a conversation about it. So anti-Semitism is not, it is present when you see, you know, graffiti on a synagogue or or things of that nature, but but like all sort of systemic uh, injustice issues, it really goes deeper and, and goes into things that we can't see. So can you help us maybe peel back the layers a little bit? So what does anti-Semitism look like when it's not sort of the, just the blatant, explicit expressions? I think the challenge for many Mennonites is that very few of us have real relationships with Jews. So we haven't sensitized our ears to it. You know, those of us who are in daily contact with African-Americans we're much more sensitive to racism, although we're still most of us on a journey and, and I make many mistakes, I know, still that fall into my white privilege and my sort of racist upbringing in the U.S. context. Because we have not been sensitized to all the different forms and manifestations of anti-Semitism, we don't recognize it. For example, When we talk about Israel-Palestine, many times Mennonites make absolutely no reference to Jewish history, either Jewish history in the Bible or Jewish history in Europe. And so there's no reference that the people who are in Israel, many of them are refugees, and they lost their homes and their farms and their land and their businesses. They're not just white colonialists who were sitting in Europe and wanted to go steal indigenous land. I think that is the primary way. It's like taking the history away from Jewish people and saying, you have nothing to fear. You have this big military. You're a bunch of white people. You're so privileged. Then there's all these comparisons to Jews and white policemen as if Black Lives Matter and Palestinian rights means that then the Jewish state is like the white policeman. In many ways, they are. I I think I understand the comparison, but it also erases Jewish history. It's saying, just like white policemen have no history of trauma, no legitimate fears, or, you know, it's simply a matter of white privilege. For Jews, trying to think about this Jewish state it's very much coming out of a history of persecution and a history where the whole world hates them and everything that they see now is more of the whole world hates us. Trying to address that is actually very essential to expediting, to increasing the effectiveness of our campaign to end Palestinian occupation and the siege in Gaza and to promote Palestinian rights. We cannot do one without the other. But yet, as soon as anybody mentions anti-Semitism, there is this knee-jerk reaction of it's all false, it's all an effort to delegitimize Palestinian rights, and it absolutely isn't. It's just, it, I, I don't know how else to say it. I felt like my article was so clear, provided so many links in the Mennonite this week to the explanation of what anti-Semitism is, to an explanation of how to build a strategic nonviolent coalition that involves Jewish and Palestinian groups working together to end occupation and why that would be so much more effective from a strategic peace-building point of view. But I feel like as Mennonites, we're almost addicted to demonizing Jews. And the fact that we now know we played Mennonites in Europe, primarily, but also in North America, played a role in supporting Hitler, in supporting 
the Holocaust and in actually carrying out the genocide against Jews. Now that we have that information, I think we absolutely have to be extremely careful in how we talk about Jews, Jewish people, the Jewish state, Israel, Zionism. I think Palestinians actually have much more freedom in how they talk because they were not responsible for any of that. It was Christians, it was Mennonites. And so my article in the Mennonite this week said, Mennonites, we have to write ourselves into this story. The Palestinian suffering in Gaza and the West Bank is in part Mennonite responsibility. If Mennonites had not participated in the anti-Semitism in Europe, Jews would not have fled and sought a new home in what was then Palestine. So I'm encouraging us to take more responsibility as Mennonites, and that's not a popular thing to say. And let's maybe um, set the stage here and uh, encourage people to go to the Mennonite and, and read that article. But let's, there was some, I guess, unfortunate timing for this. And obviously you didn't like sort of wake up Monday morning and write that. I mean, this is clearly, you put a lot of time into it. But it so happened that that came out on the day that the American embassy was being moved to Jerusalem and, you know, with the uh, anniversary of Nakba and then all, all the horrible violence that occurred uh, in Gaza. So it, it seemed like in the face of that, you were saying, oh, yeah, well, that, let's minimize that because, because of the, the, the anti-Semitism. And, but that's, that's not what your intent was at all. Absolutely. Not to minimize it. It was a horrible, horrible day. I have friends who live in Gaza who are Palestinian. I mean, uh, we were in tears. I was on the phone with Palestinian colleagues all day. And then I'm getting these attacks that I'm minimizing it. Are you kidding? I've devoted most of my life to pro-Palestinian causes and given my money and my time and my effort and stuck my head out for their rights. And so this criticism that I'm minimizing it, it's just bizarre to me. I, I wrote that article to time it with the 70th anniversary of the Nakba because so often Mennonites simply resort into this old Israelis are evil, Palestinians are good. This narrative that while I denounce Israeli aggression and Israeli policy, I try to make very clear all the diversity within Israel and the Jewish people and all the Jewish peacemakers who are standing up for Palestinian rights. So in calling attention to Mennonite roles in the Nakba, I think it's actually, it was, in a, it was the right day in terms of it was the anniversary of the Nakba that this massacre and this bizarre opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, which is a tragedy in its own right, you know, that that happened on the same day. It was absolutely not written in response to the massacre. And I said that over and over on social media, and people just, I don't know, they didn't want to hear that. I talked to the Mennonite, do you want to take it down? I'm, I'm not opposed to taking the post down. It was clearly, the post was written for the 70th anniversary. So, you know, and to help Mennonites talk about Israeli aggression with some sensitivity. In that sense, I think it was the right day so that we're thinking about the Holocaust and the Mennonites conference that happened last month. And like, how do we bridge that connection of Mennonites to Jews? And now what we're doing this month with the 70th anniversary of the Nakba so the timing actually, I'm not sure there's ever a good time for this conversation. There is constant occupation. There is constant Israeli violence against Palestinians. And next door in Syria, 50 people are being assassinated by the Assad government every single day. I mean, that's the other bizarre thing here is like, why aren't Mennonites denouncing 
Syria and the Syrian government. And, and there's so many other Muslims dying in so many other countries that we're silent about that I never quite understand how we prioritize where our outrage goes and what, what our focus is on. That is a good question. I think maybe that, that's some of uh, what gets people maybe to an emotional space uh, and, and some of the reactions that you get. I mean, some of it is, you know, what do you know, the comment section and social media is, is not a good place for for nuance, uh, you know, lesson number 10,000 or example number 10,051. So there's some of that. But is there a sense, and this is a question that, that I have, you know, not a leading question because I, I really want to know, uh, of how we prioritize. Um, so if you're, an example I would use, if, if your house is burning down, the first thing you want to do is get the fire out. And then you figure out, okay, what caused it? And so in the case of Palestinians living under the occupation in Israel, do we say, you know what, the conditions that they're living in are so horrible, they, they run so counter to our values, should we not put all our focus and all, all our fairly limited resources into ending that? And then knowing that the anti-Semitism piece is important, but maybe just in terms of, of how you triage these things, it, it should come after we, we tackle this immediate problem. I don't know. How would you respond to, to yeah, that? That's a great question. And 10 years ago, I would have been exactly arguing that same point. And my Jewish friends 10 years ago would have been saying, you don't understand. And I've taken 10 years to try to understand what they meant. Also 10 years talking to many, many Palestinian strategic nonviolent conflict and peacebuilding types. And I'm at a really different place now. So I don't think that the coercive denouncing approach is working. I think actually what all of these denouncements of Israeli policy end up doing is unifying the Israeli public and American Jewish supporters as if they are up against the entire world. And instead of dividing and conquering, dividing and separating out Jews who are supportive of ending the occupation the tactics that Mennonites and many other Palestinian supporters are using actually have the opposite effect. It is slowing the end of occupation because it's actually making the Israeli public more right-wing than they already were. So I think we have to think about effectiveness and strategy. And this is where I get biblical because I think God's security strategy of loving your enemies is not just a moral, nice thing to say. I think Jesus was being very strategic when he said, love your enemies and do good to those who harm you. Because when you try to listen to somebody, and actually Harvard has done research on this, the thing that gets Israelis to change their mind about Palestinians the most is somebody sitting down and listening to them. In that listening, they begin to soften. Once they feel heard, they are able to better understand and separate out what the Israeli government is doing is not Jewish, does not reflect Judaism, it's antithetical, it's opposite to Jewish security. You can get to that point with many Jews, but it has to start with listening. So when all we're doing is denouncing and demonizing and saying no, no, no to Jews, it's having the opposite effect. And as a strategic thinker, I am trying to get us to the place where how do we build a movement where Jewish peace activists and Palestinian peace activists are really working together. To put out the fire quickest, we have to have the strategic thinking and we have to be biblical. 
So loving your enemies is some not kind of something we only say on days when there's not a massacre. Like what if Jesus would have said love your enemies right after the Romans massacred Jews? I'm sure he would have gotten the same flack that I'm getting, you know, it, and, and I'm not even saying love your enemies, I'm, but it's definitely coming out of that biblical teaching from what Jesus said. And again, it's because I think he's saying it not just because it's the right thing to do, it's the strategic thing to do in order to end injustice most quickly. I say that also to the U.S. military about Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, that instead of bombing them and killing them and demonizing them, we have to do more understanding and listening about the grievances that are legitimate that these groups have. I think there's consistency in how I apply the ethics and in, in the strategy across many different issues that I work on. You know, uh, this this made me think of a, of, of a term that's sort of a lightning rod in Israel-Palestine and perhaps in other issues too, and, and that's the idea of balance, I guess. Uh, and and what right. you hear is, is, is the power imbalance, especially in Israel-Palestine, is, is so skewed that, that these conversations actually, and I guess the term a lot of folks would use would be normalization. So yes. you start to have these interactions, it just it makes everything sort of seem like, oh, okay, it's all, we, it's rosy, we can have some hope, but the, the facts on the ground never change. So I don't like, so long term in that strategic view, how do you see us operating as peacemakers where this balance of power on the ground is so skewed? Where does it lead us? And, and how do we get to a place where, where that balance itself is, uh, is corrected? And, and more than that, you start to, to make those steps towards shalom. A balanced approach is not neutral. And a balanced approach does not dispute the fact that there's vast power differences and injustice. So I think that's the primary thing that people read my article and think that even though I say very explicitly in the article that it does not mean that there's not power imbalances, of course there are. Palestinians have far less power and there is immense injustice And I am not neutral. People are interpreting a balanced approach as neutral. Again, no. You must be partial for human rights, for freedom, for empowerment. A balanced approach, and I define it in the article in the Mennonite, is simply listening to the narrative and recognizing the humanity of all sides. That's all I'm saying. So not to demonize Jews is another way of saying a balanced approach is don't continue using all of this language that makes it seems like it's really not helpful and it's, it's making the situation worse for Palestinians. So I think, you know, normalization, let me get to that because last fall I spent three months in Israel and Palestine. Six weeks of that was in the West Bank and we studied occupation week after week. We toured all over the West Bank. We saw all the different manifestations of occupation. We went to the border of Gaza. My friend, Palestinian friend who lives in Gaza came out, talked with our group. I think we have a really good understanding of what Palestinians are facing and of some of these peace efforts that are very simplistic dialogue. And I would call that kind of dialogue. And I wrote a paper on this. It's on my blog on anti-normalization. The critique of dialogue is absolutely accurate. Some of this is really not helpful and does obscure the justice issues, obscure the power imbalance. The problem, though, with the anti-normalization movement is that it has banned all dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians. So we have Palestinian graduates from Eastern Mennonite University that are my dear friends, Palestinians who've been working at peace and justice issues for decades, 
who have long-term relationships with Israelis and are working at a variety of different justice issues, and they are being punished by BDS and the anti-normalization movement for that piecework. Now, these are not teenagers who are being brought into some kind of naive dialogue that we can all get along in coexistence. These are advanced peace builders who are not allowed to talk to any Jews. This is where it switches over to anti-Semitism, because once you start saying all Jews are bad and you can't talk to any of them, how can you make any progress? So yesterday I was speaking to another Palestinian colleague. He's a professor at American University, and he just returned from the Middle East. And, you know, this anti-normalization movement is ruining all the different efforts for negotiation. Like, how do people on the ground think that this situation will change if no Palestinian negotiation experts are allowed to talk to Israelis? It's bizarre. And this is where, in my ethics of peace building, I get to the point of it's important to support victims, which I do, of Palestinians or sexual abuse or any issue. But it's also important not to idolize victims. So <sighs> oppressed groups are not always right. I remember when I lived in Kenya in 2001, 2002, Kenyans wanted nothing more than the U.S. military to come invade their country and get rid of all the Muslims living there. I was horrified that they would say that. I listened to them. I could empathize. I really strongly disagreed that the U.S. military should invade Kenya. You know, this is... When I was in Afghanistan, I, I heard some of the same things. Some people wanted the U.S. military there to kill the Taliban. I don't believe that. In this case in Palestine, people who are oppressed, I don't have to agree with everything that they say. I can be supporters and identify power imbalances and injustice and not have an idolatry that every single thing they say must be right. In this sense of anti-normalization, I'm standing with a lot of Palestinians who say, this is against the cause of ending the occupation. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think maybe some of what, and I'll just speak for myself here, you know, probably being just a step above maybe the quote unquote average person and understanding Israel-Palestine just from my work and yeah. being able to travel there, but still not being able to, to see maybe the, the granular details that really make a difference. So when you talk about something like BDS, you know, that, that came from, Palestinian civil society, I guess, is how that's phrased. And it seems like, well, th that's a movement that, that should check all our boxes in terms of it's a nonviolent direct action uh, against an, an oppressive power. So for, from a strategic standpoint, I, maybe what I'm hearing from you is it's not going to work because it's just really going to make the, the core of the, of the Israeli power structure you know, that much more entrenched. Okay, so this is much more complicated than most people understand. And I did a bunch of research on BDS while I was over there talking to some of the originators of the BDS movement, many Palestinians who had opinions about it. So, and I wrote an article about this also on my blog on the pros and cons of BDS. What MCUSA did in our resolution on Israel-Palestine is support a boycott of the Jewish settlements. The Jewish settlements are in the West Bank. So this is the expansion of the state of Israel into territory that has been set aside for a Palestinian state. Actually, way before BDS, a Jewish-Israeli group called Gush Shalom started a boycott of these Jewish settlements, recognizing that this was not in support of Judaism. It was, it was not in support of the security of the state of Israel. It was wrong on many levels. 
But when BDS started, you know, and there were dozens of Palestinian civil society organizations who came together to form it, and that's part of the pros. There's a lot of boxes, as you say, that it checks that we should support this. And for many years, I did support it. Right now, I support a boycott of the settlements in the West Bank, and that is different than BDS. I have a hard time supporting the entire movement because of some of the language on their website. On the homepage is just the three things that they're asking for a BDS. So a return of refugees, I agree with. Taking down the wall, separation wall between Israel and Palestine, totally agree with that. Full rights for Palestinian citizens, ending the occupation. I agree with all those things. All of the stated goals of BDS are absolutely right. Then there's another page which talks about Israel as a settler colonial country. And that is the page that most Palestinians and Israelis say that is the problem. This fine print of BDS never says that they want to have a Palestinian state coexist with a Jewish state or have one state for democratic rights. It doesn't define anything. What it says is that Jews are colonialists living in this country. Again, as I said earlier, what that language does is say that there were no Jewish refugees, there's no Jewish history, there's no Jewish connection to this land, there's never an acknowledgement of anything that Jewish people would want to see that signals to them that there's not anti-Semitism or hatred of Jews or a desire to destroy Israel. So Jewish peace groups have gone to BDS over and over again and asked for clarification. Can you add language to your website? What do you mean by this? Can you be more explicit about what your goals are in terms of how do you want occupation to end? What does it look like afterward? Are all the Jews gone? Do you want all the Jews to leave? And the lack of response, literally no response, no answer to that in print. Some in the U.S., and and again, this is where the BDS movement is a loose coalition, and some BDS advocates I don't think are anti-Semitic. I think they're great, and they get it. But the website and the official organizers still put out a lot of this stuff. And so I can't say I completely oppose BDS and I can't say I completely support it. It's a mixed bag and you have to understand the complexity of it and actually read the details and read many of the criticisms of it by Noam Chomsky, no less, by significant people who are obviously supportive of Palestinian rights, obviously supportive of freedom and occupation. So when any criticism of BDS is just thrown out as pretend anti-Semitism, this is really unhelpful. The Israeli government does use very simplistic, you know, you're being anti-Semitic if you're trying to end occupation. We have to fight that. And many of the Jewish peace groups are the ones in court trying to find the end, actually, to the persecution of BDS. So Americans for Peace Now is a Jewish-American peace group. They don't support BDS, but they are pushing against the Israel ban on BDS supporters who have travel restrictions put on them. You know, they recognize that the Israeli government does want complete permission to continue these settlements. So that makes sense. I mean, there's a lot more complexity here than most people know. And so my article on the pros and cons of BDS tries to document that, has links in the article to the very specific pages on the BDS website that are contested. But again, says there's many Jewish peace groups that 
want to work with Palestinians on these goals of ending occupation. If we're going to be successful and fast, we need to find a way that Palestinian movements and Jewish peace movements can work together. And I, I do encourage folks who have interest in this topic to, to go to your website and read. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff there, a lot of good, well, well-researched stuff. And yeah, you know what? Can I agree with everything just because we're human, but there's thoughtful things there that back up. I think a, a lot of your article, you know, a lot of it's below the surface because there, you know, there are some good links there that sort of give more context. So I, I encourage people to go through that. I'm wondering, you know, on your ethics of, of peacemaking and peacebuilding, one you talk about is uh, the trauma lens, being able to understand these things. And I've talked about it on this podcast and in different uh, places. You know, when I was able to, to do star training at EMU, that was a significant uh, learning for me to start to, to see how much that affects not just conflict situations, but, you know, the human experience in general. Right. So I don't know, like with Israel-Palestine or even your work with the military or, or with uh, sexual abuse issues, uh, what does it mean to apply that trauma lens and, and how, how are conflicts going to look different to us as peacemakers when we do that? At Eastern Mennonite University and their Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Recovery programs, the STAR program, we have a model that really shows when people have been hurt, when they've been traumatized, they can often go into a cycle of violence in which they actually perpetrate on other people, act out their trauma in, in ways that are hurtful to others. So one way we say that is hurt people hurt people. <laughs> people who are hurt tend to hurt other people. And so in trying to respond to trauma in better ways, it is a psychological healing process and, and it's difficult and it requires support and listening and affirmation and sort of I think that trauma cycle is very central to the last few weeks of my writing. So I wrote an article on the Mennonites and the Holocaust Conference, which also received a lot of angry responses from people who said, we can only understand Mennonites' roles in the Holocaust by understanding the Soviet persecution of Mennonites. So Mennonites were victims, and out of that victimhood, they hurt Jews. I felt it was kind of trying to take the responsibility off of Mennonites and say, this was really a Soviet problem. It's really, if you go back, but then here we are weeks later, and actually some of the very same people are criticizing me for trying to understand persecution of Palestinians is happening within the context of the Holocaust and the pogroms against Jews. And so I think this trauma lens and understanding the cycle of violence is necessary in every situation Many sexual abusers, I think, actually were abused as children, and we do need to have empathy for them precisely for that reason, and to think of the healing process and accountability and justice within a trauma lens. Recognizing in the world today, many people are hurt. Yeah, I think the trauma lens and being trauma sensitive is absolutely important, and it helps us to be more strategic and more effective in peace and justice work. You know, I don't want to get too personal here. So, you know, please uh, guide the conversation after, but thinking about trauma, some of the feedback and pushback you've gotten uh, via social media on your articles, very intense uh, and very emotional. Uh, and, and to read it, you would say, wow, is this, is this who we are? You know, is this how we talk about things? But again, I, I think a lot of it is it's coming from an emotional place and, and a place where you say, no, we, we, we see the hurt and then we want to respond to that. I'm just curious you know, to you, how do you process this as a peacemaker you're standing by your convictions and your training and trying to stay true to Jesus as you know how, 
uh, and is bringing you, uh, you know, no small amount of, uh, of grief, I guess is, is the way to put it. I, I don't know. How, how do you handle it? Yeah, it's definitely painful. So I would say when I first started training the military in peace building and trying to push back on military perceptions of Afghans or Iraqis and trying to humanize the people in my teaching, I got a lot of pushback from the military. I often felt like I was the the only woman, the only civilian standing in a room full of military men in military fatigues, and they were all shooting darts at me, kind of symbolic darts as I was talking. And it felt like my body was taking in poison. And I realized at that point years ago that I had to develop a thicker skin if I was going to do peace building work, because you're not going to be popular saying things. If, if you just stay with the choir and everybody who agrees with you and you're not really challenging justice issues, you're fine. But if you believe, as I do, that Jesus's message of loving others means listening to them, engaging with them, going toward them, listening to them, and then also speaking your truth about injustice, you're going to find a lot of painful encounters. And I have had a lot of painful encounters. <laughs> and now in the Mennonite community, as I'm challenging on sexual abuse, I feel many Mennonites refuse to talk to me. They won't say hello to me in the grocery store at my son's track meet. I mean, I, I face hostility and shunning and excommunication. And I call it like social torture, basically every day of my life living in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I have a very different understanding of the Mennonite community. And just sometimes it just feels so superficial. They, you know, praise Jesus, go to church, but hate your neighbor, you know, don't love somebody or sit down and talk with them. If you disagree with them, they're sort of like, I don't know. I, I just, I, for me, Jesus's life is something that is very serious that I really do try to follow. Um, and I, I can't understand maybe some of the hatred toward me. I can understand people disagree and are uncomfortable. And so I try to have grace and understanding from that. And I guess this week with, oh my goodness, yes the cursing at me by MCC workers and the telling me to shut up. And really, I, I cannot believe some of the comments that people have made. I don't know what to say. I, 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 I read back through it and I was like, should I tell the Mennonite to take it down? I mean, some people said I don't reflect. I reflect a lot. I ruminate all the time on whether I'm doing the right thing. You know, I made phone calls to people I admire who gave me advice, who, who encouraged me to leave it up and that it's the right thing. And I heard from Palestinians that it was the right thing. I heard from many, many Jewish organizations. I had national Jewish organizations saying, your article is it. This is what we need. We need more people saying what you're saying because we want to end the occupation too. And we can't figure out how to get people to all work together so that we can unite against the Netanyahu government and the Trump policies and, and really have a more coherent, strategic voice against what's happening. Um, so I had Jewish peace groups saying that to me, you know, and then this Mennonite hatred saying that I'm anti-Palestinian. I mean, some of the comments were so absurd saying I'm anti-Muslim. I've worked all over the Muslim world in Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iraq. I am I'm so respectful. I have so many Muslim friends. It's, it's absolutely bizarre to hear these criticisms without really any context or certainly not asking me any questions. And I think that's what bothers me the most is that 
I think I am very reflective and very humble and very willing to say I was wrong. I apologize to people all the time. I said, I sent an angry email. I sent an apology email. I don't feel other people are practicing that or even coming to me when they disagree with me. There's sort of like this jump from anger to shunning or denouncement without any sort of listening or attempt to understand or dialogue. And, and that makes me sad in the Mennonite community because I think our pacifism needs to be practical. If we're going to believe in pacifism, then we need to believe in the practical skills of listening and loving people with whom we disagree. I, I think that's an excellent word. And that's, uh, that's one of the questions we ask often on Peace Lab is what does it mean to be a peace church in the 21st century? And some of the challenges are new and complex, but a lot of a lot of the answers are going to be you know rooted in our traditions and in our faith, and and uh, I think you just articulated that that well. Anything else that we wanted to cover? I, I'm, I'll just end with the tenth principle of the ethics of peace building, and that is put forward positive alternatives because I think as peacemakers we often are critical of things, but we don't put the positive alternatives out. And so for me, this is one of the lessons I think I didn't start out. 30 years ago thinking this, but what I've come to is like, you can't just say war is not the answer. You have to give the answer to. <laughs> if you're going to denounce something, be ready with the alternative, be ready with the details. And so as a writer, I do write a lot. People think I'm self-promoting. I'm not self-promoting. I'm trying to get the ideas out. <laughs> I don't know how else to do it. I don't know if men get called self-promoters or if it's just women. In critiquing the current Mennonite narrative, I think I've been very explicit in my blog about what's the alternative? How do we not demonize Jews while we denounce Israeli aggression against Palestinians? And I try to put out that positive solution also on sexual abuse. So most of my work on that issue was not only standing with survivors and being an advocate for them, but laying out specific policies for Mennonite institutions that they should adopt so that our campuses and institutions are safer. So I think it's just an important lesson as a peacemaker to not just be critical, but to be positive and to lay out the alternative. I, I do think our resolution that we passed on Israel-Palestine does a good job of that. You know, I, I'm really proud of that. I know you were, I mean, that, that process had, you know, it was ultra-Mennonite. It had so many layers, but you were a part of that. But it feels like we're, we're at least we're moving in the, in the right direction. Yeah, I think we're, it's a step in the right direction. Lisa, thanks so much for taking time today. Thanks for, for all the, the work you've done in peace building and, and just your courage and, and sticking your, to your convictions there. And um, yeah, thanks for this time. And I hope we can catch up again in the future. Okay, thanks so much. And thanks all for all of the good work that you do too. 